Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everyone, depending on where you are. My name is Kevin Mainangige. I'm here as a help to Mokaya, who will be with us on and off. I work in an investment bank, Jengis Capital. I've been in the industry for roughly 11 years now, primarily dealing with equities, fixed income, and a bit of corporate finance. Thank you, everyone, for joining in. With us today is guest, James Moria. He's been with us before. A Kenyan lawyer, an accountant, and our chief executive that leads a Centum Investment Company. We've seen the news this week about Cedian, and Mori is here to just take us through everything regarding that transaction, why they went into it in the first place, what was their intention, have they achieved the results they desired, and etc. So we're going to start off with the introduction with James uh, introducing himself. And if anyone has a question, you can always comment on the pinned tweet. You can DM us or you can raise your hand and ask to speak. So, but that will come later on in the show. So maybe right now I can let James Moria introduce himself and maybe just give us a brief background, James. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Kevin, for that warm introduction. Thank you very much, Kevin, also for inviting me. I am James Moria. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Centum Investment. I've been on uh, this basis before, and it's my pleasure to engage with you this evening. And thank you very much for many of you finding time to join into this conversation this evening. I'm looking forward to an engaging and stimulating discussion. I always find these discussions very helpful, even for me. Thank you very much. Kevin, over to you. Thanks a lot, James. For anyone maybe who might not know about Centum, Centum is an investment company with many years of experience, I think spanning from around 1967 to now, 2022. Of course, we've seen a couple of things with Centum from the acquisition of Longhorn in 2007. We've seen Centum buying stake all the way from 19, I think, 96. So we've seen them going to GM. We've seen them going to Nairobi Bottlers, Everready, Kissy Bottlers, Minet Insurance, you name it, UAP. And I think around 2005, they got into KREP, which is now Cedian. And maybe, James, just as a start, maybe you can just take us through what CDM is to you and what Centum basically was thinking going into CDM and now that they are exiting CDM. James? Well, thank you very much, Kevin. We got into CDM initially in 2000, I think earlier than five, but we were 1% shareholder and we were minority investor. You remember in those days, CDM was then known as Kere Bank. They were getting into microfinance. And at that time, we thought that microfinance would be an area of growth. So we came in with a minority stake. At that time, Centum did not have a strategy of acquiring controlling stakes in entities. In 2014, the rest of the shareholders who are largely DFIs in KEREP wanted to exit. And they constituted about 64%. And we looked at it in 2014. At that time, we had become bigger in microfinance, just as we had anticipated. They had gone through some ups and downs, but they were really on the up. They had an, a return on equity of about 30%. It was one of the highest in the market. Even if they were accessing expensive capital, they were able to price it in the model and lend it. And we thought that we could scale up that business. And so when we came in, we then did a couple of things. One was invested in the brand, rebranded from Kerep to Cidian. Because at that time, Kerep was considered an NGO, like a non-for-profit. So the orientation towards commercial lending was really not there. And our view is that we could pivot into that space. We then invested in people, upskilling the management team. We then invested in systems and then obviously in expanding the branch network. Two major things happened with that original business model that we invested in. One was the collapse of Imperial Bank, followed by Chase Bank which meant that the cost of funding increased significantly for tier three banks. We were relatively small when we got into Cedian. It was about 10 billion shillings in terms of total assets. Today, for context, it's about four times that. So it was very difficult to access liquidity for the smaller banks. So lending became difficult. And then that was exacerbated by the interest rate cap, which meant we could not price risk on the microfinance loans at 13%. So the whole business model was blown out of the water. So we then now had to pivot because what you funded to scale out of external and regulatory developments cannot happen. So we then pivoted now towards SME, being an SME business, supporting SMEs, largely led through the trade finance business. We brought in the current managing director, Chegedumbi, to lead that. That was five years ago. And then to scale up the business in that direction. Because of the interest rate cap and what happened with Chase, the business moved from being a profit-making to a loss-making uh, business. 
Now, maybe I'll come back to this later. The challenge with private equity investment, as opposed to, say, having bought a share in a listed stock, is that it's a lot easier to exit in a listed stock. When you're in a private equity space, you have to do a lot of work to improve the asset to then be able to get an exit. So it's not straightforward. Now that the business model has changed your exit, you then have to work on pivoting and turning it again back into profitability in a totally different business from what you had begun. So CDN has largely focused in the last five years on being a market leader in trade finance, in SME lending, and in the most recent Think Business Awards, I think it scooped, it scooped very many awards, which was part of the strategy. And through that process, turned it into profitability. Last year, we closed just short of 500 million shillings, around 4.8 billion shillings. In the process, the amount of capital we had put in initially was about 2.7 billion shillings when we acquired it. Oh, I think, yeah, 2.7. But then we had to do follow-on investments to support this change in strategy and to support capital. Banks are very capital intensive. For eight shilling of asset growth, you need one shilling of capital. We've injected about two billion shillings over time. And that's how we built the equity from 64% to 83%. However, having addressed the obvious inefficiencies that were there in the P&L, whether it was NPLs, NPLs was one big cost we had two years ago, NPL ratio was 20%. We brought it down to 11%. ROE now is about 11% last year, return on equity. Now, the issue you have is because of the risk-based pricing lending regime, you don't price debt based on your cost plus a premium. You price based on the risk of the customer. You price that risk and you then assign a pricing of the risk-free rate plus at another standard costs. So it therefore means that for you to earn a reasonable return of equity, scale is critical because you cannot pass inefficiencies of smallness onto the customer. You have to optimize either your processes or increase your unfunded income, which we have done from what it was three years ago or four years ago, 600 million to 1.6 billion a year. But ultimately you have to scale. You have to, you, have to, you have to increase the size of the business. Now increasing the size of the business means that you must inject capital. And that's what we did. Actually, every year we've sort of injected capital to support the business of, of the bank. So if you look at return on equity of banks, what you will notice is that today, tier one banks have a higher ROE, tier two banks have a slightly lower ROE, tier three banks are sort of the best are probably hovering around 10, 11%. So that's sort of where we were. I want you guys to assume you're members of an investment committee given that background and say, okay, you're where you, we've reached. You, you've sort of optimized what you could. And the last area of optimization now is scaling up. So you have three options. One, you can stay as you are. But if you stay as you are and we are sort of making 500 million shillings a year, up until when you do the audit, only half of that money counts as core capital. So 200 or 300 million shillings can only support 2.4 billion shillings of growth. 2.4 billion shillings of growth on a balance sheet of 40 billion shillings is about 5%. Now, capacity that the institution has is a lot bigger than a growth of just 2.5 billion. And it's been growing from 2015 to now it's grown four times. So it means if you stay as you are without injecting additional capital, you then have to significantly slow down the growth of the bank because of capital constraints. Even if you reinvest all the profit that you get, and you don't pay out a dividend. So that's one option presented to you as an investor. Option two is continue to support the growth by investing additional capital. Now, to move from tier three to tier two, you need to have about 10 billion shillings of capital. That's entry level for tier two. We are around 5 billion shillings. So you need to double the capital. So even assuming the bank makes 700 million shillings a year for three years, that's about 2 billion shillings. You need to invest almost a billion shillings a year. So you then need to think, okay, do I then put in that money? And if I put in that money, what return on equity am I chasing ultimately? So the most efficient bank now, I think, is upside around 20%. But I think, Kevin, you have more current numbers, but that's sort of what you're shooting for. So that's a feasible option. But it's going to cost you anywhere between 2 and 3 billion shillings if you're a standalone operator like we are. Then option three is to say, look, I've optimized it. Can I exit? Then if you want to exit, then it becomes a pricing issue and say, am I going to get a price at the top end of the market? If you look at the listed banks 
because of all those changes that have happened, multiples have come down. So when we got into banking in 2014, multiples for banks were two times. It was not uncommon to have banks trading at 2x, 2.5x, etc. Now, the top bank is at 1.1x, and the bottom bank is at 0.2x. So that's a continent uh, by 1.1 times book and 0.2 times book. The point is that if you can get the upper end of the multiple, then you're probably indifferent because even if you exit and you still want to be in banking, you can get into any other bank as a financial investor and not have to be on the hook for additional capital. So we ended up having an option to exit at 1.1 times book, which was at the top end of the market. If you look at price to earnings ratio, we got about 10 times. The top end of the market now is about five, six times. So it means even if you grow earnings, it may not necessarily translate into additional price. And to grow those earnings, you definitely need to put in capital. Because if you look at where we were, we closed the year at around 11.5% core capital to asset ratio vis-a-vis statutory mark of 10.5 times. So we definitely need to inject capital. So those were the options available to us, available to any investor. There's no right answer. You know, it depends on what you want. Stay as is, in our view, was a value-destroying option because then you start losing staff who joined the bank because in an ambition of growth, you disappoint. I'd painted the background so that then you can understand the case. So the point I was making is that we, we considered three options. One is to stay as is. The second is to invest additional capital to support the growth of the institution to be a tier two institution. The third was to exit. Now, the challenge of the stairs is that you built an institution, which is a machine, and you've been building it for a long time, which can achieve a lot more. So if you stay as is and you just reinvest retained earnings, the rate of asset growth that it can support is not sufficient for the institution you've built. So you're going to have customer disappointment and then you're going to start losing the value you've created because anyone who's going to acquire the asset is acquiring it based on its growth potential. The second option is to invest additional capital, which is not a bad option. This you need to probably put in as a standalone anywhere between 2 and 3 billion because the entry point for a tier 2 is about 10 billion shillings in capital. So that means that you would reinvest all the retained earnings for at least three years and continue to invest. The issue with this option is that then you'd be reallocating capital from say marketable securities which are giving you a current return of about 15%. So you then have to think about the opportunity cost of the capital you are reallocating to that option and adding it now also to the capital that you've put in and then also thinking about ultimately, given the regulatory environment, what's going to be the return on equity and also how attractive is going to be the exit multiple. Then you have another option, which is to exit immediately. This option, you're sort of thinking about it in terms of how does my exit price compare with where the market is? Am I getting it at the top end? So those are the choices. It's clear what choice we made. So different parties would make different choices, but those are the considerations we went through in making the decision. Okay, James, thank you very much for that. So you told us about what informed the decision to exit CDN. So maybe a couple of follow-up questions from that would be, maybe you can describe to us generally, how is the process? When will the sale be completed with all this? I think what I did not explain is then, once you make the decision to exit, you then must figure out to which buyer will this asset be attractive? Because the more useful it is to a different buyer, the higher the value they are willing to pay. The highest value sale exit would be, was for us was to a strategic who is already in the market, who was probably invested in an asset with surplus capital, meaning they can plug this asset into their asset and deploy capital that is currently not being utilized. So they probably don't will not need 3 billion shillings to invest. They'll probably need a lot more money. Plus, they also have the infrastructure and the systems that would otherwise have invested in. That's the person to whom this asset is most valuable. So when we did that analysis, that's how we ended up reaching out to access and finding out whether they were interested. And they had looked at it internally and were also very interested. So it was a natural fit in, in a sense. We didn't speak to many parties. We, we, I think actually we only spoke to one party and that party, because you've done the analysis of who is the best owner of the asset at the stage it is in because they don't have the capital constraint. They have another asset here, which is overcapitalized. So they can bring the two together without rejecting additional capital and get growth and synergies. And that's how we ended up with sort of being able to get a, a premium on the exit price. We've signed 
and it's subject to regulatory approval. So this is CBK, competition authority, etc. So typically this will take anywhere from 90 to 120 days. So three to four months to conclude. All right. Thanks, James. So maybe still on that point, you've already said, and Centum didn't talk to many purchasers because both of you, I think, had looked into each other internally. You've taken us uh, through some of the uh, core numbers, but what do you think are the key numbers to pay attention to with this? From what sense, Kevin, maybe you can expound on the, on the, on the, on the, on the question. Yeah, we know the sale price. You've taken us through the capital injections that our Centum has done over the years and what more was needed over this time. But Again, if you're looking at all the indigenous factors and you've mentioned some of them in terms of over the last two, say, to three years, how the banks have performed in terms of, of course, ROEs all the way from tier one to, say, tier three. And now here you are. I don't think we are out of the thick, thick of this yet, but then you concluded this deal. So what were the key uh, ratios that you were looking at and why? Of course, you've given us the three scenarios to stay as is. Of course, to invest additional capital exit. And of course, you've chosen the third uh, Options. Why wouldn't we have waited for more? That's great. You see, the way you create value is in an asset is by increasing return on equity. The challenge you have with banks, especially, is because of the requirement, because you're taking other people's deposits. So you're required to provide certain capital to support the growth in assets. So the growth of a bank is very contingent on the capital base. Now, if you already have a high return on equity, like the tier one banks do, they don't need additional capital injections. They can support their growth through the profitability that they're making and have a distribution. If you're small and you're scaling up in this environment now, you actually need to provide capital injection. Now, the issue is for you as an investor, because a capital allocation decision ultimately is given the environment and the outlook, do, are you comfortable liquidating assets, say, earning you a cash return of 15% to then inject for possibility of future growth in now what is like a utility business if you don't have scale. So those are some of the considerations. Now, when you're thinking about the exit, then you're looking at where multiples. Now, remember these multiples are following the market, what's happening in the industry. So when it was two times, there were no regulations around pricing. Even interest rates were low. The spread between the lending rate and the funding rate was also quite high. These spreads are getting tighter as rates are going up because depositors are demanding higher rates of return. So those are all the considerations that you look at and you sort of make a very rational decision. Now, finally, I've seen, rightfully so, the analysts have asked, how does the exit price compare to your entry price? Okay. Now, the issue is not our entry price because our entry cost was 2.4 billion versus an exit of 4.3. The issue was all the other capital that we had to put in, which took it to 4.7. And even if you stay, remember, you have to put in additional capital, but you're not sure whether you will recover that capital at the point of the exit, especially if there's a multiple contraction. But having said that, again, the timing of the investment in private equity is critical. If you look, at, we're looking at prices of banks in March 2014 when we came in and comparing them to prices in June 2022. So if you invested in a listed bank in March 2014, exited in June 2022, what we are looking at were what are the average returns? So we just went through the list. The amount trust was 201, it's now 50 ball. CFC was 109, it's 99, 9% down. INDM was 31, it's 17, 46% down. Only equity has gone up, 31 to 43, that's 6% up. APSA was 16 bob, it's 11 bob. 31% down. KCB, 47, 18% down. Standard Chartered was 27, now it's 123, 57% down. COP was 14, now it's 10, 25% down. Once you made a bet to get into banking in 2014 and you're in private equity and you came in at those multiples and you're holding a significant stake, chances are that it's very hard, given what has happened, to make 2, 3x money, given all those factors. So you're sort of now on capital preservation mode. How do I optimize my exit so that then I can catch up through something else? All right. Thanks, James. Just a reminder to everyone that if you have any question, of course, you can comment on our pinned tweet. You can DM us directly and you can request a chance to speak and ask your question directly to James. So maybe James, while we wait for additional questions, maybe you can take us through now capital allocation. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So all these decisions are capital allocation decisions, you no know, exit decisions. The question you're asking yourself, is it time to take out my money from this particular asset? And if so, where do I take it? 
And typically you take it out if you think that the risk of downside is greater than the risk of upside. So if, if you look at our strategy from 2009 to 2019, it was largely, as you mentioned, we did a lot of transactions, acquisitions, but these were funded through two main means. One was exits of other assets. So you're sort of recycling capital from one asset to another. So you have to sell to then have capital to reinvest in the next asset and two borrowed capital. So we issued two bonds. But when you do that, when you borrow and you borrow say at 13%, the implicit assumption is that the growth rate of the asset will be greater than 13%. That is driven by two factors. One is the growth of the earnings of the underlying entity and two is increase in multiples. So as we were getting to 2019, 2017, when we did our risk reviews and sort of investment reviews, on some of the assets where we had created a lot of value, like the bottlers, and you being internally as a portfolio manager, you know the limit of how far you can move EBITDA, earnings before interest tax. So you know, I've done all I can do and there's very limited room. So when we were negotiating a price of 10 and a half times, the risk of exiting at that time is if, say, multiples now about 15 times, then you've lost a lot more upside. Now, sort of our view was that it was unlikely would get a multiple higher than 10 and a half times. And in some of these assets, you don't have many potential buyers. And the convergence of a buyer wanting to buy your asset and the right timing is critical, especially when you're selling to a strategic. So like that asset we exited and the thesis was that it was unlikely multiples would go up. At that time, breweries was trading at 10.6 times. We used that as our benchmark. If you look at it now in hindsight, 2022, multiples are down to around 6 7% EV. Now, the eventual valuation is very sensitive to declining the multiples, even if EBITDA remains constant. So you're sort of saying, yes, I've created value, but is it time to take out my money off the table? Then the next question becomes, where do I take the money? Now, if you implicitly believe that multiples will come down, then putting money back into assets at high multiples doesn't make sense because you may lose the money. And the key thing you want to do is to preserve capital. If you can create capital, if you can't at least preserve it from eroding, from some loss of loss erosion. So when we looked at the possible assets you could deploy to, we had options of putting it say, in private equity. The challenge with the private assets is that the multiples have not yet related to the same levels as the public markets. The price expectations are still quite high. So if you're not disciplined, you are likely to overpay. Then we also looked at public equities and said, you know, can you come into the stock market and pick up sizable chunks? Again, we're not sure whether these prices will not decline further. Obviously, now in hindsight, between 2019 and now, asset prices of listed stocks across the board have come down by more than 30%. So if sort of you put your money, they would have lost 30%. But then we were a lot more conservative. So we thought, okay, we are not sure about that. So let's just preserve the value by going into fixed income securities and earn a cash return. And, and that's what we are doing even in this case. We are still not sure it is time to go into a public market. We don't know whether the market has bottomed out and you don't really want to guess it. Our view is that you want to wait when there's an upside to sort of look at that space. So you're preserving value and in the interim increasing cash income, which then can go towards purchasing assets when one is confident or feels that the, the entry point is, is right. One of the reasons why sort of the bottler exit transaction worked well is because when we are coming in to buy the additional stake, we're buying those assets at three times EBITDA. When we left, we exited at 10 and a half times EBITDA. So even if we did nothing with the asset, we had a three times uplift just on account of the market going up. So my lesson, because I've been doing this for a long time, from 2000 to now, 20 years, that the, the timing is important, and especially in private assets, because it's not easy to get out once you get in. So you really have to come in at the right price and then be sure that you can undertake. So for now, what we are likely to do is probably stay in fixed income assets just to preserve value and a cash rate and just build that up. So then when you have an uplift, you then have the firepower to sort of go in. Thank you, James. Maybe a few follow-up questions. So, so one is that you put in around, I think, 4.7 billion so far on the assets. And then the exit value is around 4.3 billion. So that makes it like a bit of a loss of 400. 
much. I wanted to ask, because you had uh, some sort of thinking around this, and also please, was this certain, maybe just exiting the after perhaps. And then the second one is about bonuses, I think, and around, uh, there's a common question you get, like, so you've exited CTN at a loss, but then in perspective is that, are people getting bonuses even if they exit at a loss? I think that's very important to address. Thank you, Eric, for those two questions. So the first question is, yes, you invested 4.7, you're exiting at 4.3. So I think that two aspects. I'm sharing with you my perspective on the issues. When we looked at it, when we're negotiating, the differential is about 400 million shillings. So I told my team, look, we can spend another one year haggling this thing. But if you get your cash out and you even invest at 13%, you'll recover the difference in eight months. So to my mind, it's not material. If you stay longer, you have to put in more money. So this 4.7 will not be 4.7. It will be 5.2. So you're chasing a moving target. The second thing is something called sunk cost fallacy. This thing doesn't actually feature in, in decision making for us. What features is where you are today. So where we are today, we're carrying this asset at 2.7 billion shillings. So we had revalued it down from 4.7 to 2.4, then went up slightly to 2.7. And this had gone through our P&L as an impairment provision. That's the realizable fair value that you have today. And then you're sort of looking at what is the future costs, what is the future return, and what's the timing of that. So I remember I was faced with this decision in 2000 and uh, 2000 and with an investment we had called Rift Valley Railways. We had put in $5 million and staying longer meant we needed to put in more money or be diluted. If we got diluted, it meant that no one would be interested in buying our 10% in RVR. So we exited at $3.5 million. I remember it caused quite a sensation in, back in 2009-2010 that we had lost $1.5 million. We took the money. We then reinvested it in a company called Cabasid. And then we exited at 1.2 billion shillings. So we could have stayed, we could have put in more money, but I think everyone knows what happened. So in my mind, that is not really a relevant consideration generally. It's really where are you today and what can you do? What's the opportunity cost of that capital and what options are open to you? On the question of bonus, we have the bonus policy and it's very clearly set out in the annual report. So, for example, for this deal to qualify for bonus, we need to make a 15% IRR on it. So that means that you need to make like 1.15 raised to the power of seven years because we had been in for seven years. So this would have needed to have an exit at around 2.6x what we put in. So the exit would have needed to be at 12.5 billion shillings. So the policy is that generally, let me take this as an example, assume it's only dealing with the portfolio. So it would have meant that because it's on, it's on a cash to cash basis. So you look at what you put in and what you left. So the first 15% doesn't qualify for any bonus. So any value up to 12.5 billion doesn't qualify. Anything above that, so say you exit at 13 billion. So you have 500 million shillings above that. That 500 million shillings, then 20% of that goes to the bonus pool. So 100 million shillings would have gone to the bonus pool if we had exited at 13 billion shillings. Now, as it so happens, we exited at 4.3 billion. So it's below the 12.5 billion. It doesn't contribute to bonus at all. All right. Thanks, James. Another question. I'm seeing a question here from a guy called Patrick. And uh, he says, from Almasi and now CDN, we have only seen exits. Does the company still plan near acquisition or do they just want to refocus on real estate? No, that's a good question. As I've said, you create value, then you look at the market. Like I've taken you through the options we had with, with, with Cydian. So you take a view, do I exit and pack my money in cash or move it to another asset? Now you'll move it to another asset if you believe you can create more value, you know? And of the asset choices we have, because even fixed income and cash is an asset class, we've largely increased our allocation to fixed income. So it is not true we've not been investing. We've increased the fixed income portfolio. This exit process have largely gone to fixed income. And what we've done is then restricted expenses, interest, and dividend to be within the cash income so that we do not dig into the capital. So when the market is right, we'll maybe look at other assets. But again, you, you want to have a reasonable degree of confidence that you can make two, three X your money. Now, let's assume in 2019, we went into the stock market. Today, we would have lost 30% of that money. Let's assume we went even into new private equity assets. 
the multiples were where they were from 2019. It would then not have made sense to have exited an asset to then go to another asset and pay a lot of money. It's just that it takes time, but there's a process of cycling out of an asset that you've created value in and then getting into another asset. That intermediate period, you're then sort of sitting on fixed income. Now, on the question of real estate, it is not like we've made new real estate investments between 2019 and today. These investments were made way back in 2009, 2010. In fact, between 2019 and today, the Centambri has paid back 4.5 billion shillings to Centum. So it's actually cash generative. We had invested 7.8 billion. We've gotten back 4.5. So our net investment is 3 billion. We've actually invested less money in, in real estate. In fact, if I take Centum Real Estate and Two Rivers, combined is 4.9 billion. It's about the same money we've invested in. Uh, so we're not investing more. It's that that asset is still on the portfolio. All right. Thanks. Another question I'm getting here from one of the listeners is on the issue of share buyback. So maybe where we, what are your thoughts around that? That's a good question. And I want to answer it in the context of, there's a question on the share price. Yeah. What we did is that yes. we did an analysis of who is selling, who is trading in Centum shares, because we have different groups of investors. We have large investors who own more than 1 million shares. We have investors who own between 100,000 and 1 million shares. We have investors who own 10,000 to 100,000 shares. We have investors who own less than 10,000 shares. Now, what we found is that the bulk of the trades happening are in the group that owns less than 10,000 shares. The group that owns a million and above, they're actually net buyers. So where the trades are happening is in this group of 10,000 shares. Now, the people who own less than 10,000 shares out of our 36,000 shareholders, there are 33,000 shareholders who have less than individually less than 10,000 shares. And that group accounts for about 8% of the equity of the company. So about 50 million, 50 million odd shares. So some of the thoughts around how to structure the share buyback is also how do you remove the overhang of these shares? When we did a survey and asked some of the people through the brokers where you're selling, it's not fundamental driven, it's driven by need for liquidity. So if I have a thousand shares of Centum, whether it's 20 bob or 15 bob, the difference to me is only 5,000 shillings. It's not an investor relation conversation you can have that would sort of change the motivation for a lot of them. It's because of the need for liquidity and probably the idea is to target the buyback around that. So there's an ongoing conversation with the regulator around how then one can have a targeted buyback. So it's not taken up by everybody, but how do you sort of address that issue? So then you give these particular shareholders some liquidity if they do wish to exit. So that's ongoing because the rules came out and the rules were fairly restrictive. But the good thing is that the regulator is open to a discussion. And that's something that is currently ongoing because our solution may be a bit different from what is currently provided for in the rule. I apologize, I'm in a noisy place, but the question I wanted to ask is the exit from CDN is around 4.3 billion. Centum itself is valued around 6, 7 billion. Has a thought ever crossed your mind like maybe you can actually just sell an asset and buy Centum and just take it private to no, maximize value? No, that can't happen because of the shareholding structure. You see the shares that are driving the price in the market are the small shares, the small blocks of less than 10,000, those shares constitute only 8%. So even if you made a compulsory takeover offer, only that group is likely to participate. The, the shareholding is very concentrated at shareholders who hold more than 1 million shares. Those parties have been net buyers when you look at it for a long period of time. And they're not many, so I speak to them. So we have two markets. You have those parties, they would not be sellers at that price. So you can't really buy their shares. Those parties are account for almost more than a million, account for like 60, 70% of the company. So, so you have a market cap. Like if you look at this year alone, the price has come from 17 to 12. But if you look at the total number of shares that have traded are only are less than 4.5 million shares. So less than 50 million worth of shares that have traded. On the face of it, it looks obvious. When you peel the onion, it's not as straightforward as it would appear. So a, qu a quick follow-up is about, you know, with the proceeds now, what are you planning to do with them? So you have 4.3 billion. What are you going to do about it? And when does this transaction close, by the way? Yeah, so as I said earlier, the transaction closed in 90 to 120 days, subject to regulatory approvals, which I'm sort of cautiously optimistic we should get. 
the plan, as we indicated in the announcement, is, and that's what we've always communicated, that we wanted to have this new phase of our next growth without debt. So further, the, the debt is down to 3 billion shillings, so I think we'll pay half of it. That will be down to 1.5. And then the rest will probably put in marketable securities. We're also watching the public markets just to see when they turn because dividend yields are now very high for a lot of very good companies. So the opportunity cost of waiting, assuming nothing happens to the fundamentals, is now low because you're enjoying a yield of 8 10%. And the multiples are very low. So a lot of these companies are undervalued and the market is going to turn. I was in this situation. I witnessed it because I was in the investment industry in 2000, 2001, 2002. The assets were very low. What we bought, we had significant upside. We again had it in 2008 after the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, 2010. Again, we had an upturn. So there's a lot of opportunities where you can make two, three X money, even just with the market, the way it is. So probably put it in fairly liquid assets as you wait for the right time to sort of get into some attractive stakes. At the time we had sort of sizable stakes in different listed companies. Well, if we were holding them now, we would have lost a lot of the value because the objective has been to preserve NAV per share. Okay. Thanks, James. And thanks for saying that again. A follow-up question here regarding GEM is, has the road to listing begun? And what are some of the factors that will inform the listing rather? Okay. So I'm assuming just for the benefit of the audience, the person asking the question is referring to agreement we signed with GEM and Centamri, which was signed by a portfolio company called Centamri, for GEM to acquire up to 20% shareholding in Centamri at 17 billion shillings. That's the question. That's the question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me just take a step back. What is the business of Centamri? Let me just explain. So I think recently, if you follow it carefully, you've seen they are now focusing on the letting market, which they could not do before because they did not have an inventory to let out. So that's why they established that market. The people who buy their houses, 90% of them are investors. Only 10% are owner-occupiers. And the largest segment of the market that has sold the most is market that is providing rental housing solutions of between 20,000 shillings and 50,000 shillings. And that's what they will probably most likely be focusing on. But with a more keen attention towards addressing the end tenant requirements, so either renting or preletting, and then essentially selling a yield to our buyers because our buyers are investors. Now, if you think about 20 to 50,000 market, it's a fairly large, large market and it's a disorganized market. And St. Amrie has the opportunity to be a fairly large player in that market, market space. And if I look at like one of their products in Two Rivers, which is Mzizi, where a two-bedroom is seven million. That seven million is giving somebody living in Ruaka an option to live there, probably pay fifty thousand shillings. That is six hundred thousand shillings. That's a yield of nine percent, and that's why those units have sold like hotcake. The, the margin for them is still attractive. That business is of interest to international investors because rental payments account for a large proportion of households monthly spend, and the segment of the market they're focusing on is the new household formation. So they see that business as being significantly scalable. And that's why Jem got interested. And obviously we had been in discussion with them for a while, but they were interested in a listed entity. What St. Amri is working on is scaling up their business. And there's a couple of things they're working on, which are currently confidential, which should probably be the public soon. Then eventually to a road to a public uh, listing. There's a transaction that was done in December in the UK, Miller Homes. You can look up a company called Miller Homes which was bought by Bridgepoint and then sold to Apollo Capital. And that transaction was done at a billion dollars, the valuation for Miller Homes. My feeling is that as they expand in the region, focusing on that market, it can be a very sizable entity. And that's what they're working towards. But you know, a listing also has to be subject to the market conditions. But at least there's, there's interest and we have continuous discussions with them. Thanks, James. Maybe another question that has been asked by a handful of our listeners is on the issue of dividends and special dividends. Talk to us about this. Yeah, that's a good question. When we did the review for Centum 4.0 back in 2019, one of the things that underpins any strategy review is what is your view of the macroeconomic environment? And our view in 2.0 and 3.0, our view of the macroeconomic environment is that it's going to be very bullish. 
And if you think the market is going to be bullish, you can take on a lot more risk. So some of the risks we took is let's borrow and let's deploy that capital. Because you're essentially borrowing and deploying it to liquid assets. Coming into 4.0, our view was that, look, we're actually bearish. We, we, we thought, look, the environment will not be good. So we need to cut the risk and preserve capital. And that's why we took a decision where we feel that we've optimized the valuations. Let's exit and let's reduce the debt. Because if the debt is growing faster than the value of the assets, it can very quickly erode net asset value per share. But then let us also restrict our outflows, our expenditures to the cash income so that we don't eat into capital. So that's what informed the dividend policy of 30% of cash income, expenses of 30% and sort of, and then interest is all in there and then you still have some retained earnings. That's a dividend policy we have because it balances the short-term needs of the shareholder, the cash, and the long-term imperatives of the company because we must act in the best interest of the company. So what is the constraining factor right now for us is the cash income. And so to boost this dividend further, the reallocation of assets from entities that are not likely to generate a dividend in the short term or even in the medium term, then means you boost it. So for example, this exit from Cidian, if you allocate it at 13%, that's an extra 600 million shillings. It gives the company in the short term, as we wait to sort of an environment where you can then have significant capital gains to be able to boost dividend income. I hope I've been clear in that response. So the answer is that we don't want to distribute dividend from capital. We want to distribute it from cash income that we have. And right now, our communicated dividend policy, which we think will stick to, is the 30% of cash income. What now we can do to boost it is to boost the cash income through reallocation of assets like the case study we've gone through today. Thank you very much, James. And maybe just a reminder to anyone who has a question, you can ask your question directly on our pinned tweet by commenting there. You can DM us directly or you can request a chance to speak. As they do that, James, I can see a question here on MSP. Okay, first, maybe to the other readers you might be wondering, what is MSP? So MSP is a marketable securities portfolio. Up until going into 2019, we had very little in marketable securities. Why? Because our view is that the other asset classes could generate a lot more, a much higher return. That was our view. And that was all the way from 10 years, from 2009 to 2019. We actually got out of listed equities. We shifted a lot to private equity. And, but then going into 2018, our view was that, look, we don't think market conditions will be as what they were. So let's shift back and let's preserve capital. So even when you look at the MSP, this is largely fixed income. But this is cash that can be reallocated very quickly to other asset classes. The idea was to sort of preserve capital and generate cash in the, in, in the interim so that you can then use it to pay dividends. Before this transaction, it was 7.8. So it will possibly increase by another 3 billion to 10.8. And depending on whether there are other shareholder loan repayments from some of the companies, that figure will continue to be boosted. Now, again, if we believe conditions are changing, then we'll make another strategic asset allocation decision to then shift from that to specific to specific assets. Have I answered the question, Kemi? You have. Thank you very much, James. What I've tried to do to the audience <laughs> is to sort of share with you the kind of information we go through in our investment decisions. Again, so that you can also make your own conclusions. You may agree with our conclusions, you may not agree, but at least I wanted to give you not so much the answer, but the thought process behind those the considerations we are making. We appreciate that, James. Thank you very much. Anyone with a question, please, you can request to speak and we'll give you that chance. I've exhausted those in the pin tweet. Anyone with a question, please feel free to raise your hand. As we wait on that, maybe James, we could talk about the NAV. And the question here comes is, does James still believe the NAV, that's the share price gap, is a market mistake? And if so, is Centum still grossly undervalued? Okay, so let me address several aspects of the NAV. So the NAV, We've communicated many times, it's our conservative estimate of the value of the underlying assets. So if you look at our net asset value calculation, for example, CDN Bank, in the NAV, even for the results we'll release next month for the year ended March, we are carrying CDN at 2.7 billion shillings. It's selling at, it, we've managed to sell it at 4.3 billion shillings. So the NAV is conservative. Uh, obviously, there's a price gap. But as I've explained to you, initially, we thought that it, the trades were happening across the board. Now, when we bifurcated it, it is clear that there's 
a market of small shares taking place, which sort of sets the price for the whole entity. And when you speak to the larger shareholders, their value expectations are aligned to closer to NAV. So they would not sell at the current prices. It's sort of closer to NAV. It's not a straightforward sort of question. We are thinking of alternative solutions, including maybe reducing the float of those shares so that then you can have a more targeted investor relation with an audience that actually trades at a value more closely approximating where NAV is. All right. Thanks, James. As we approach towards the end of this space, maybe you can talk to us about, I know you've mentioned CDN and you've touched a bit on Centum A is maybe you can talk to us about how the other businesses are doing and which other firms seems like okay. Yeah, brilliant. So I can just go through the list at the, so CDN, CDN is doing great. I think the team has done a great job and it's interesting how market sentiment changes quickly. In 2018, 2019, we did a market survey of market perceptions around Centum and one out of every 10 feedback got like four of them on criticisms on CDN. Why are you in that bank? It's a useless bank. Why do you invest in it in the first place? Okay. So having turned it around is performing a lot better. Then you exit. Again, now you have four out of 10. Why are you selling? It's a great asset. So perception really follows performance, but you see the lead precedes that. So you sort of have a sense of where you're taking it. So CDN, I think we've done a good job and that's why it's of interest to investors. Isuzu is doing great. It's a dividend paying company and the market changes around promotion of locally manufactured vehicles. I think will favor Isuzu in the long run. It's not asking for capital. It's contributing. Longhorn is a listed company. I think I don't want to speak about them. And us, we took a significant markdown because of what happened with COVID and impact on airline. So this was conservative. We wrote it down significantly. And this again went through the P&L. It's recovering nicely and it's now profitable. Ace Holdings is a school. This again, it's getting now, to, it's getting to break even. Akira has taken us a while. I think we've made progress and there was news recently about what's happening there with possible JV with another entity. Greenblade Growers is our agriculture business. Actually, this business can be big. I remember 24 months ago when we had a, business review meeting for CDN. At that time, we were losing about 20 million shillings a month in, in CDN. We were working out, we turned that around. And, and I was having the similar conversation with Greenblade Growers. Now they're making like 10 million a month. And you know, CDN were making now 50 million, 45 million a month. So the conversation I was having with them is saying, guys, you can easily move this business from 10 to 50 a month, bottom line. And they do export hubs. So the margins are very high. So you don't need to grow sales incredibly. So for me, it's an exciting business. I think we, that's a good franchise. It's carried at a very low valuation on our books. We are carrying it at cost, less, less previous year's losses. Centambri and uh, Two Rivers is largely carried at, um, at cost of the underlying asset. But if you look at sort of the discussions we had with Jem and where they were pegging the valuation based on DCF of the business, we are talking about it's a lot higher. They're not looking at it as a land play. They're looking at it as a development play and what you can do with it. That's why the valuations are where they are. So Ken Bay has been on Twitter spaces before, just has quite a bit of work. And I think these are scalable business. It's doing great marketable securities. The great thing we've not lost capital since we got into this space and it's, we are now averaging about a 15% yield. So it's doing great. That's where we are on the asset. So it's not a complicated uh, portfolio. Thank you very much, James, for that information. So maybe James, you could tell us your view of the macro situation in the midterm, say 24 to 36 months. I think uh, as an investor, okay, so you have what's happening globally. Kenya is now really connected with global, global development. So what you're seeing happening with currency, et cetera, is largely a factor, a function of what's happening globally with the increase in interest rates by central banks. So that has made it a lot more attractive to hold dollars and to hold fixed income securities. The discount rates for assets have also gone up. So that has also contributed to a falling in share prices. So as these share prices fall, fund managers are switching to fixed income. And if you are a foreign investor in Kenya, maybe you are investing in an open-ended money market fund or an equity fund you're getting capital calls. As you get those capital calls, you need to make sales. Those sales, you're not making based on a fundamental analysis. You need to return money back to your investors because you want to reallocate one to fixed income because the interest rates are going up. 
And I think that explains what you're seeing with our share prices in Kenya. So what's happening in Kenya is not unique. It's happening across the world. And it's happening across all sectors, whether it's in tech, especially tech has taken a hard beating. Because these are largely companies that are selling on promise. The cash flows are very fine to the future. So once discount rates go up, the impact on valuations is quite significant. Now, from an investor perspective, I think this presents a wonderful buying opportunity if you have some liquidity. The issue is you never really know how long these things will last or how deep the downturn. But again, the interesting thing also is that the interest rates on fixed income securities are quite high. I recall in 2009, sort of going into 2012, the challenge we had is that although prices were low, the interest rates are also very low. So you couldn't quite go into fixed income. But now interest rates are also quite attractive. So you can also have a reasonable return on the fixed income side. But my own sense is temporary. The world is geared towards growth. So once the global market sort of stabilize and rates come back down, then you'll see our market sort of picking up. I see what's going on now as an opportunity. It's really nothing to, it, it happens. I've seen it in 2000, 1999, 2002, 2002, 2002, 2002, 2002, 2002, 2002, 2002, 2002, Thank you, James. I've seen a couple of more questions that have come in as we approach the end. Yes. So one of the questions I think you've mentioned on these regarding to the capital that is coming, maybe I can just bundle them up and maybe you can tell us, is access paying in hard currency or is it paying in cash? So that would be the first. And as you answer that, maybe you can also tell us or expound to us more on the difference between the yield and the debt cost. It's public knowledge now is that you're going to offset some of the debt. I think it's around 10 shillings, 3 billion. So why would we be paying down this debt if we're getting a higher yield on MSP portfolio? James? Thank you. First question, access is paying in Kenya shillings. Second question, that's why we are not paying the entire debt. We intend to just pay half of it. Our strategic objectives, our intention is to eventually retire the whole of it. So we'll pay down half or just about 1.5 billion and then just leave the other half. So sort of you're saving 13%. So that's what I was saying, even on a 13% return, that is 600 million shillings a year. Then we reallocate the rest. The balance will pay down the road. Thank you, James. Another question here is in one of the portfolio companies, and then you've taken us through some of these companies briefly, is maybe you can just talk very briefly on how NABO is doing in terms of growth versus other MMFs. Oh, NABO, yeah. NABO, I know the reason I've not put it as a portfolio company is because for us, we see more of a service company. It's the one that sort of manages our marketable securities portfolio. They have other clients as well. And they're doing very well on the retail front. They have partnered with a number of clients and they have a number of fast-growing retail investment products. So it's doing well. It's profitable. It, uh, we have an arm's length relationship with them, so we pay them a fee. And they provide a service to us and we're happy with the service. It's important for us, not just as an investment, but really as a very useful strategic service provider to Centum. So we have that close relationship with Nabo. Thank you very much, James. And uh, someone here is asking about the TRDL capital restructuring. Maybe you can talk to us about that briefly. That is actually coming along very well. It's coming along well. It's not completed. So we first dealt with TRLC last year. In a couple of weeks, we'll see what it's coming along very well. Thank you very much, James. You can see one more question here. Maybe I can ask this before that. So is the Centum board or management, will they engage with the major shareholders to buy out their overhang? I think this is in response to CDN. Yeah, we are doing different things. What that insight was that we need to bifurcate our investment relation strategy. So we speak to some of the larger shareholders, but even the local individual shareholders and share with them the opportunity. And those actually have picked up a lot of what has been sold by retail shareholders. That's an interim step. The challenge with the current large shareholders that we are all on the board. So the problem with that is that there's this issue of insider trading and the open window. That has been fairly restrictive. So we sort of have to speak to the other group that is not on the board of the company. The thing you don't want is to buy these shares at 10 bob, then they go to 50 bob, then you're accused of having acted on material and public information. So that has been a constraining factor for some of the shareholders who are sitting on the board. Thank you, James. There's one subsidiary 
that has been fairly quiet, and that is Barium Capital. So other than helping branch in 2019 with the capital raise, how are we doing with Barium Capital? Yeah, so what happened with Barium Capital? Barium Capital is actually a spin-off of Nabo Capital. So Barium was offering advisory services, but eventually the business model was not viable, so it ceased to operate. So it's spun-off. The idea was that there was a perceived conflict of interest between Nabo offering advisory services with Barium. So they spun off Barium and Barium focused. But in 2020, 2021, during COVID, there was really not much advisory business available. So it ceased to operate. All right. Thank you very much, James. And quick one here. What keeps you up at night? Ah, many things keep me up at night. The things that flow to the top from all these companies are problems. So one of the things I was telling my team, my senior leadership, is that the key skill here you need is not just how to deal with problems, but how to remain calm when dealing with them and also seeing these as opportunities. Initially, a lot of things used to keep me awake. Now less, I'm used to it. I know when I wake up in the morning and we sit with the team, we'll resolve a lot of issues. But you, you invest, like the story I told you of Cidian, the market totally changes and you have to pivot completely and you're trying to preserve your capital, recover it. So there are a lot of, there's a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things. So these things are not black and white, but you have to learn how to cope with it. You also have a gallery of the public and who have an opinion on everything you're doing. You sort of have to shut that out. I really appreciate your criticism, your praise, but I'm glad to shut it out so that I can just remain focused on what I'm doing. And that's why I like setting up for these Twitter spaces because then I can have a once in a while structured discussion around the issue. That's how I cope with it. Thank you very much, James. And indeed, we do appreciate you. I think this is the third time we are having you You're very much accessible. We appreciate that. This being an election year, maybe you could talk to us about the property sales or units of two rivers and maybe as an extension, River Bankino, Cascadia, Mzizi and Lot. No, they've done well because of the market segment you're focusing on. You see, if you're thinking about you owning a house in two rivers at as low as 4 million shillings, then it's attractive. It's the price of a car. So the idea there is around democratizing home ownership so that we make it affordable and we provide quality. Now, when we launched this rental portal, the interest has been very high. So there's been good both property sales collections and also sales of, of bulk land in, in Vipingo. But for me, I see this business as a lot bigger. So how do we really scale it up and do like a thousand, two thousand units a year? We are on scale up phase. So yeah, it's an election year, but because you're on the basic, you're sort of offering something that people can see they need, then there's a lot of interest. Or right. Thank you very much, James. A couple of questions here, maybe you can bundle them up very briefly as you approach the end. Is One is, does Centum still have open positions in the energy investment space? And what is their view on the Kenyan market regarding renewables? And maybe as you answer that, you can also... You've just mentioned on the property or unit sales. You can talk to us about inflation and how that has affected the costs the constr in terms of construction costs versus the units already sold. Yeah, that's true. So uh, let me start with the last question because that's an interesting question. The costs have gone up and what we've been doing is because we, we, we are constructing in bulk, we've now gone into strategic procurement. So if you're procuring steel, now we procure direct from the manufacturers for all the projects and we removed those from the scope of the contractor then you can at least manage the cost increase. Then there are items like finishes, where again, initially they had been awarded to the contractor in bulk and sort of on an individual contract basis. Again, what the team there is doing is going for strategic procurement direct from the manufacturers, cutting out all the middlemen and just applying the contract. So that where you've suffered cost increases, you can then try and get the savings. I think what is interesting is what you're doing going forward around standardization of design sort of using more of a formwork technology around technology adoption so it will be more cost efficient and improve margins. What has been done, so one has to be a lot more efficient. The other day I took the team to meet with the team sales and we're just talking about one item like that. When you look at all the projects they have across the board, flash doors only, they need like 10,000. So if you save 1,000 shillings on that one item or 1,500, it's huge by just procuring from the largest manufacturer and just delivering to your contractor so that you can make up for what. So these challenges actually make you a lot more creative. And once the challenges go away, then there are better business. My role all along, and I've had the good fortune of working with a bank, with a bottling company, with an insurance business, with education business. It's the same process. It's how do you remove waste from the system? And in that process, you create a lot of value. 
it's when now you there's nothing left to remove like when we had EBITDA margin of 24 percent we had the highest EBITDA margins in the world so amongst the bottling companies that's where now you say okay i can do no more and i can scale no more then it's time to leave so i find this exciting supporting that team there on energy and renewables it's very very exciting because of the constraints with the major utility what has happened with a lot of renewables they're now working with customers direct like on microgrids rather than going into the main grid so we've seen that with solar especially on solar i think geothermal the issue is just a period of time it takes to develop but i think geothermal would be a good solution as the hfos come off and i think we can all see the strategic risk of working with hfos because of the important component of fuel especially as a currency weekends you would rather work with your own fuel which is a geothermal so i hope because of what's happening, we'll see a lot more support towards geothermal development because that's the only alternative significant base load power that can come onto the grid and that is also clean. Because the challenge with solar, it's not base load, it's intermittent power. You need base load which is available throughout to support solar. All right. Thank you very much, James. Eric? I think we've exhausted all our questions. Yeah. So maybe, James, you can give us your closing thoughts and especially this being an election year, you can maybe give us perspective and also your message to Kenyans as we head into election season. I know a lot of foreigners have been exiting the NSC. So perhaps a message to also foreigners who are investing in our space. As a business leader and someone who a lot of people look up to, what's your message to Kenyans in an election year? And also perhaps also uh, give us perspective on what to expect from Centum going forward as your closing thoughts. Okay, thank you very much. So first, I want to thank you very much for hosting me on uh, Twitter Spaces and for the continuous engagement. I want to thank all those who have logged in and who have participated in this call. I want to thank all those who post different messages. Some are encouraging, many are criticisms. I do ask uh, Eric sometimes to compile for me. I do give your points and perspectives quite a bit of thought uh, sometimes. So thank you very much for your continued interest in the company. I guess it's because it's only investment company that sort of is public and you can get to know. I also appreciate it's an opportunity for us to learn and engage. So thank you very much. As far as the elections are concerned, I have had the good fortune to engage with candidates on both sides in different forums. And my own sense is that there's a commitment towards a peaceful election, which I think is the most critical thing. And I think for the first time in a long time, we have an issue-based politics, not necessarily based on ethnicity which I think is a positive development for Kenya. We are growing in our democracy. I don't think there's really any need to panic because we are going through an election period. I think my own sense that we'll go through this fairly peacefully and we should have a transition to the next government. I think from Centum, as I've explained before, our commitment has been to create value, which I think we've done. Not It's evident we've done. It's there in the books and uh, to preserve that value. And to do it with the discipline, it is easy to get carried away with the noise, to do things that appear popular at the time, but perhaps may not make be in the best interest of the company in the long term, which we've tried to do. And I think we are very well positioned to take advantage of the opportunities that are coming up in the very soon. I think we'll see a lot of opportunities. So we just have to be a lot just disciplined and cautious and just stay the course, not deploy too quickly. There's a quote from uh, Henry Kravis who said, don't congratulate me when I buy, congratulate me when I exit because any fool with money can buy and overpay. And that's the challenge you have even with the P space. There are many investors who participate site exits as a challenge because you are rushing the buying decisions. So one has to be fairly, fairly careful. We'll continue to do that and continue to add value to the underlying companies. As far as the results concerned, you know, I was speaking to one investor yesterday who came to see me and I asked him, look, you're an investor. Have you made money every year you've invested? He said, no, I lose money sometimes. So I asked him, what tolerance would you give your fund manager of what they can lose in a year? He said 15%. So I said, look, the most Centum has lost in a year is less than 8% of assets. And that's only in two years. So I think it's also good to look at our performance in that context. You can't have a positive return every year as an investment company in a volatile investment environment. So what for me, I focus really on protecting is the NAV because if NAV goes, then you have a permanent problem. The share price issue for me, I see it as a temporary issue. The key issue is to protect the underlying value. Thank you all for your support. Thank you all for your interest and encouragement. And thank you, Eric, for inviting me. And I look forward to hopefully inviting me in the future. It has been an honor and a pleasure this evening. And I 
hope all of you found this engagement useful. I've certainly found it useful. And thank you all for your very well thought out questions. Thank you so much. Um, it's always a pleasure. I think you're one of the few CEOs who are very open and I know you track almost all the positive and negative questions that you get and comments that you get on Twitter and try to respond to them. So we do try from time to time, of course, to compile some questions and send them to you. So if anyone is in the audience that has some questions that they would want addressed, just send them to us, DM us, and we'll definitely compile them and regularly send them to GEMS for Q&A sessions. And so we hope to have you after the full year earnings, and then you can explain to us how the company is doing. So thank you so much for joining us. And it's a pleasure always. Kevin, any closing thoughts? So James, again, I reiterate what Eric has said. Indeed, it's a pleasure having you for the third time. I think you're one of the most accessible and open chief executives we have in the country. That doesn't go without saying, I think I speak for everyone in just thanking you for being here and taking close to two hours of your time to be with us. I do wish everyone a good evening, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are. Thank you very much.